Well, just a few weeks back, we were talking about the sovereignty of God, and we took a break from our study of the gospel according to Matthew to talk about the sovereignty of God. And I hope you weren't growing tired of it because we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God today in Matthew's gospel account. And so if you have a Bible, you can find the 20th chapter. We're going to to the school of sovereignty, if you will, uh, and we're going to learn from Professor Jesus. And Jesus wants to help his disciples understand the sovereign grace of God. And by sovereign grace of God, I mean, or by sovereign, I mean um, the free grace of God, as in, yes, it comes to us freely, but I don't mean that. God gives it freely as he sees fit. Uh, to be sovereign is to be the king. To be sovereign is to be in charge. To be sovereign, if you're God, means to have not only all power, all wisdom, all authority, but also all prerogative to do what is, do whatever you want to do with that which belongs to you. And if you're the creator of the universe, it all belongs to you. And so Christians love this reality, at least lots of Christians do, I know lots of you do, Um, perhaps unbelievers don't care for the sovereignty of God, Uh, but strangely, plenty of Christians don't care for it either, Uh, and they have a hard time with God being free to do whatever he wants to do with his stuff, let's say, Uh, especially when it comes to salvation. And so if you love the sovereignty of God, awesome. If you don't so much love the sovereignty of God, I won't say awesome, um, but welcome. I'm glad you're here, um, and I hope we can all learn from Jesus uh, as he firmly and yet compassionately wants to help us understand that indeed God's grace is sovereign grace. I will say one more thing before we jump into this parable, and that is when Christians use the the label sovereign grace, it's a bit of a shorthand, we're talking about God freely extending his salvation, his saving grace, however he sees fit. And who are we to question? We might have questions, but who are we to question? Who are we to to call God maybe not good uh, or infer that he's unjust or not fair if God extends his salvation a certain way, even if it's not the way we necessarily would extend it. If we were God, we're all thankful that we're not. So sovereign, I love sovereign grace. I wouldn't be saved if it weren't for sovereign grace. Is it mysterious? Yes, it's mysterious. Does it bring about questions in my mind? It absolutely does. And yet Jesus firmly, clearly wants to make sure we believe in his sovereign grace. He teaches a, he teaches a parable. We're going to look at that parable. And the takeaway is going to be learning about sovereign grace from Jesus. Here we go. Verse 1. We'll only read verse 1 and then just fill in the blanks and then we'll go quicker after that. Verse 1 says... For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like. There's been a lot of questions about the kingdom of heaven. Who is a member of the kingdom of heaven? Who gains entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Remember, Jesus just said in chapter 19, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. He was talking about small children who obviously can't contribute by their good deeds or anything that they can do to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And that would cause questions. Why is it that God does it that way? And then we had the rich young ruler last time who was super religious, super committed to doing all sorts of good deeds, and Jesus turns him away. 
That causes questions about God's sovereign grace. Why is it that He chooses to extend it like this, but He chooses not to extend it like that? So it's no wonder, and there have been all kinds of teachings about the kingdom of heaven, and who's the greatest, and who's not the greatest, and who gets in, and who doesn't get in. And so Jesus is finding it timely and fitting to say, let me, let me explain how this works a little bit better for you through a parable. A parable is a story, it's an illustration, uh, tip, uh, a common story, a common occurrence that everyone would be familiar with or could understand to make a spiritual point. It's not an allegory. An allegory would have all kinds of hidden meanings, uh, all kinds of layers of meanings, perhaps. Uh, but the best Bible scholars are pretty much in agreement that parables, unlike allegories, tend to have one point. Uh, and the reason we can say not just scholars say, say that, and that's a pretty good take, uh, is because Jesus interprets some of his parables, and he tends to interpret them that way. So the takeaway here, no doubt, I'm in good company saying... God does what he wants to do. God owns the vineyard, so to speak. And God does what he wants to do with his stuff. And when it comes to salvation, things regarding the kingdom of heaven might not be the way you would do it, but it's the way God does it. And it wouldn't be a good idea to question his goodness because he is in fact good. So that is the takeaway ahead of time. Just looking at things. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Verse 2 says, After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius a day is a good wage. That's what a Roman soldier was paid in the first century. And so it, it's, it's a, not just a... He's not a cheapskate. Okay? He's, he's going to give them a good wage for a good day's work. And New Testament scholars think he's probably going to operate on a 12-hour scale. A workday would be 12 hours, commonly speaking, uh, with a couple of hours built in for breaks on a hot September day. And so it comes down to a 10-hour day. And so as if the day starts at 6 a.m. and ends at 6 p.m. Um, is how most people take it here. I'm going to take it that way. It doesn't actually matter ultimately, uh, but to understand the story better. And so um, there, there's a sense of timing going on here. Uh, there does seem to be a sense of urgency as well. We don't know why exactly there's a sense of urgency other than the grapes are ripe. And you don't want them to be overripe. Some speculate maybe there's urgency as well because maybe it's getting later in the week. And if we get too late in the week, we have Shabbat. We have Sabbath. And there's no working on the Sabbath. And so that could be playing into all of this as well. And remember, in the Jewish mind, uh, the day starts at sundown the day before. So if this is Friday or something like that, or Thursday even, you've got to get things moving. Uh, and so he's going to keep recruiting more and more people to work on the harvest because we've got to get this done. Again, you don't need to know that to understand the parable, but I thought you might find it interesting. Verse 2, uh, verse two we've already covered, then verse 3, and going out about the third hour, scholars say 9 a.m., I'll go with it. The third hour, because they started at 6, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Just wage, fair wage. Verse 5. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour. So now we're at 12 p.m. And the ninth hour, now we're at 3 p.m. He did the same. 
verse 6, and about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Verse 8, and when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, plot thickens here, notice carefully, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Maybe that's not significant, but it causes one eyebrow on my face to go up. Seems like things are maybe changing here because you'd think you'd pay the first people first and then the last people last. Don't want to read too much into it, but... And here's where the plot really thickens. Things don't go as expected. At least from some people's perspective. Things are going as expected if you're the vineyard owner. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. That tells us that the vineyard owner is, what should we say? He's, he's gracious. He's kind. He's, he's generous. That, that wasn't what, what, what we would expect. He's more than fair. He's definitely fair, but he's even more than fair, it would seem. They worked a tenth of the day. So they work a tenth of the day and they get a Roman soldier's wage for a tenth of the work. If you're those guys, good day. And we already know because we understand how the human heart works. If you're the other guys... Maybe it's going to be a good day because maybe you're going to get extra. But if not, all right. Isn't it, isn't it kind of fun to know how it goes? I, feel, I, 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 li- I like to know the answers. I like to be right. And since we already know how all this goes and we've read it before and we understand Jesus, we're like these stupid people. But if we're honest... This, 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 this is a good little rattling of our cages. I think. Because if I were the ones who started at daybreak on the hot Middle Eastern day, I would be bugged, bothered, troubled, if I'm honest. Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more because they were promised more. No, they weren't promised more. They agreed, right? That they would be paid a denarius. But each of them also received a denarius. Then verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled. An onomatopoetic word. Sounds like the sound that it makes. Gagidzo. Gagidzo. Right? Grumbling and complaining, and it's even written in the uh, in the tense in the Greek text that this is their state of being. This is what they're doing. This is this isn't just a small thing to them. They're seriously bothered. Seriously, gagidzoed. No passing thing. Verse twelve says, saying, "These last worked only one hour." And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So they're accusing the landowner, the owner of the vineyard of what should we say? 
What would be, what would be a good word? Cheating, being unfair, unjust, not good. In fact, in light of what Jesus is going to say a little bit later in verse 13, wrong, right? So that now they're sitting in judgment of the landowner and calling his integrity into question, calling his goodness, calling his fairness, his generosity into question is what's happening here. And we can just hear it, right? That's not fair. Um, I haven't been a very good dad when it comes to being a perfect dad. I won't claim credit, but I've done a good enough job with my kids that we don't say that in our house. <laughs> Attaboy. <laughs> Unless we're actually talking about that, right? If somebody else gets something good and you don't, don't say in my house, that's not fair. How about be happy for them? We're not even talking about fairness. And Okay, I digress. But you get the idea. But it's easy to maybe um, pick on our children. But I am so this person. As an adult. I, I just heard an adult not very long ago complaining about their pay. And I wanted to say, are they paying you what your contract stated? Because I know that they are. Well, if you signed up for that and you agreed to the pay, why are you complaining about your pay? That's what you signed up for. This actually, this actually doesn't even make sense. And now you're questioning the, the integrity, of your, integrity of your employer. I didn't because I have self-control sometimes. Um, but I, I could tell the same story on myself. This is kind of how we, how we do things. And, and Jesus knows the human heart thinks like this. And he knows we not only think like this when it comes to contracts and business and families. We think this way sometimes when it comes to God and his grace. And how he extends his grace. Who he extends it to. Who he withholds it from. And sadly, even many Christians think God is not fair and God is not just and God is not good because he doesn't extend kingdom privileges, if you will, the way they think he should. And that's not a good look. And so we're going to learn from Jesus, the school of sovereignty, and he's going to try to help us because it's not good for you and it's not good for me to question God's integrity if it shouldn't be questioned. And we're learning from this parable, if the, if the landowner is likened to God, it shouldn't be questioned. So I'm really thankful for this because it kind of puts me in my place. Verse 13 then says, But he replied to them, Friend. wonder what kind of intonation it was. I wonder how stern it was, how strong it was, how soft it was. I like it that he says it. Let me help you. Friend. I am doing you no Wrong. See, they were accusing him of doing something wrong. That's why I said that earlier. I know so from this text. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Yeah, back in verse 2, they agreed for a denarius. The landowner is not unjust. He's not bad. He, he, he's good. He's not wrong. He's right. He's, he's doing what he said he would do. Here's a good quote. Notice, notice the emphasis on he and his, if you would. He kept his word to the original workers 
and is sovereignly choosing because he can, because the money is his and because the field is his and because they were working for him to freely do what he wants to do with his money. Well, when you put it like that... (laughs) See, for an, for an outsider, this is a, a no-brainer. This is super easy. But when you're in the heat of it, you kind of, th- it's Lulu, right? And our thinking about God sometimes is all too Lulu, crazy. I mean, this is just clear, straightforward, reasonable Then notice verse, are we on verse 14? I think we are on verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I have given you, as I give you. am, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? My mom would say, you can bet your boots you can. since the discussion about sovereign grace, uh, the pushback to sovereign grace is so oftentimes um, with emphasis on, but I choose. And it's true, we do, but we would never choose right apart from God's sovereign grace. I choose, and it's always about choosing. I find this a very fitting passage. Let's read it again with the emphasis on the owner, the sovereign doing the choosing. Take what belongs to you. I I choose for effect. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? I think it's a pretty good little pushback for us who are so enamored with our choosing. And Jesus is saying, friend, the sovereign is the ultimate chooser. So it might be true that you choose, but his choosing is sovereign over everything. Sort of like R.C. Sproul once said, uh, if you want to argue that you have free will, that's fine, but God's will is freer than yours. <laughs> Never mind the fact that our will is bound according to our nature, that we're sinners according to our will and nature. We need someone to intervene on our behalf. But that's a whole different topic for a different story, for a different time. But here we're seeing, am I not free to choose to do with my, I'm going to say stuff, whatever I want to do with my stuff? The kingdom of heaven is like this. That puts me in my chair, so to speak. Um, causes maybe my, my mouth to, to, to go closed. Hmm. Okay. Verse 15 goes on to say, Or do you begrudge my generosity? Some of you may have a translation that translates it, my goodness. If it translates it grace, it's a little too strong. Um, It's the word actually, not the word for grace typically, it's the word for good. Either way is fine, but just to be picky (laughs) or do you begrudge my generosity my goodness showing my goodness my generosity 
that, that's super helpful when it comes to me trying to figure out how the kingdom of heaven works and how grace works and how salvation works and trying to think it all through. And um, If he's been generous to me, who am I to complain about anything? Why would I want to begrudge? Why would I want to have a problem with how he extends it? I'm just thankfully extended it. I, 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 want, I want to join the Apostle Paul who doesn't have all the answers to all the questions either. He's, he's not perfect. Jesus has all the answers to all the questions, but he doesn't tell us everything. But my point is that what the Apostle Paul refers to such things as myster- mysterious at times. And yet what does he do? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ preparing to go into the depths of sovereign grace like you've never seen before other than from his Lord? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Then verse 16 says, So the last will be first, and the first last. Where have we heard that before? Well, in the last chapter, we heard it. It may mean... Both, both of these are true. It may mean um, that so everybody's equal because all these guys got paid the same. That would fit the context. So if, if you're trusting in Christ to get into the kingdom of heaven, everybody's equal. Maybe that's the point. Or maybe the point is first or last and last or first. It's not the way you think it is. Rich young ruler, he's in for sure. Small children who can't do anything to contribute. Oh, they haven't earned it yet. First or last and last or first. The way the kingdom of heaven works is not the way you would necessarily have it work. God's sovereign grace is God's sovereign grace. He does what he wants to do. He's free to do what he wants to do with his belongings. It's his prerogative. Again, whether you take it one way or the other, both of those are true ideas. Well, let's think about how do we interpret this parable. And I, I couldn't help myself all along. I've been interpreting it. I interpreted it with the introduction. I interpreted it all along. Um, but my notes here say, now let's talk about interpretation. So let, let, let's, let's do this maybe by talking about some of the other interpretations. Some have suggested this parable is all about labor relations. It's pretty obvious that that's not the, the key. This is about the kingdom of heaven and parables are common illustrations to make a spiritual point. Although I have to say to you, when I heard someone complaining about their salary and it was what they signed up for, I thought of this passage. It is true, right? It is common sense. But surely that's not the main point. Um, Some have suggested uh, that this is all about the, the return of Christ and being ready for the return of Christ because verse 18 talks about evening coming. Uh, I... I think that kind of misses the mark. Uh, is it true Christ is coming? Yes. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Should we, we be prepared for that? Yes. Is that what this parable is about? I don't think so. Some say this is all about Jews and Gentiles being equal in God's sight. I'm going to say no. Is it true that Jews and Gentiles are equal in God's sight? Yeah. If you trust in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, There are two categories in the Bible. There are Jews and there are non-Jews, and they're called Gentiles. Jesus is the Savior of the world. All different kinds of people. True, I don't think that's the point here. 
Some, Irenaeus, who is smarter than I am for sure and by far more creative than me, he said this parable teaches us that there are five periods of history. Here we go. Beginning with Adam. So first we have... um, Beginning with Adam. The period of 9 to 12 noon is that... So, oh, from 6 to 9, Adam... Uh, 9 to 12 noon, Noah to Abraham. From 12 to 3 included the period from Abraham to Moses. The time from 3 to 5 denoted the time between Moses and Christ. And the last hour pointed to the period between the ascension and the return of Jesus. It's kind of cool. Um, do you buy it? I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. So what's it about? It's about God. It's about God being fair. It's about God being free. It's about God being sovereign. It's about God doing whatever He wants to do with what belongs to Him. And salvation is of the Lord. Yes, it comes freely, but it also is His to do with whatever He wants to do. And for us to not say, well, I think if He does it that way, He's not good. I could never believe in a God who does things like that. Oh, don't go there. But I've heard all kinds of Christians in the conversation about God's sovereign grace say things like that. This is a parable for you when you're tempted to think like that. And for me, if I'm tempted to think like that. No. God is free to do whatever He wants to do. And He's not asking for us to vote on whether or not it's a good idea. He's not asking for a committee meeting. He's not asking for input. He's all-wise, all-knowing of everything. And He freely gives as He chooses to. And He freely withholds as He chooses to. It's His. It's His. The sooner we figure that out, the better. Does that mean we don't, ha- we don't have questions? No, I have all kinds of questions. I have tons of questions. But what I don't want to do is question God in the bad sense. I want to learn from the psalmist, right? I say this a lot. I'll say it again. Pardon me. How long, O oh Lord? There's a question. Why? There's a question, and it's bathed in and surrounded with in the psalm, praising God for His goodness, generosity, mercy, kindness. But there are questions. I have questions. I'll probably have questions forever. When we see Christ, we'll be made like Him, we'll be glorified, but we won't know everything, because if we knew everything, we'd be omniscient. There are some things that we just don't know. So it's okay to learn about God's sovereignty and say, but I have questions. Why, why am I saved and somebody else isn't? Why, is it that, why isn't it that someone I really love and want to be saved isn't? And on and on the questions go. Don't know. Not sure. It's a mystery to us. And I've been on this bandwagon quite a bit lately, and I'll, I'll do it a little bit more, at least one more time. Um, and to say... Thoughtful Christians have a good, robust category for mystery. But don't use it as a cop-out. You know, you've talked to the person before, you're talking about salvation, what does it take to get to heaven? Uh, And you say, well, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. So you do need to believe in Jesus. And they say, well, you know, I don't know if we can be so sure. We'll find out someday. Well, that's a cop-out. The Bible's clear about that. The Bible's clear about God's sovereignty. It's a cop-out to say that it's not clear about God's sovereignty. 
But be careful, so, so don't be that person. But don't overswing on the pendulum, so to speak, and then say, and I know the answer to every question that's ever been asked. Or that if I can't know the question, then the reality can't be true. Or if I don't know the answers to all my questions, then the reality can't be true. The more thoughtful Christians I read who aren't the cop-outers, if you will, the more I see mystery, mystery, mystery. So let's do our work. God is sovereign. God extends His grace freely as He chooses. I still have lots of questions. And so I'm going to do the work and sit at the desk, if you will, working on answering questions that I have from the Bible. But eventually I have to push my chair away from the desk and say, there are things I don't know the answers to. Why did God not save this person? Why did God save this person? Why did God save me? Why, 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 why? I I don't know. But just because I can't answer those questions doesn't mean he's not sovereign in his grace because he clearly is. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 is a helpful text. It says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is free. God is free. And He extends His saving grace freely the way He wants to. And I would encourage you, like Jesus does, and by by saying, friend, God is good in doing this, even if you have questions about the ins and outs of it all. Friend, affirm the fact that the vineyard owner is good and does whatever he wants to do with his vineyard. Friend, Jesus is good to to take them aside and do this. And then what I would want to do and encourage you to do having embraced the reality of God's sovereign grace, is to join with the psalmist in Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, I want to end with a test. And my test has to do with two famous people that everyone in the room who's an adult and lots of you who are younger than adults uh, will be familiar with at least one of the two names. The first famous person that I want you to think about is Princess Diana. Princess Diana did a lot of good things, a lot of philanthropic things, a lot of charitable things uh, she wanted to get behind. And so she's known for lots of different things, but she is known for that. Uh, when she was alive, she died a tragic death in 1997. But when she was alive, uh, when we saw her on the news in America, we, we, we saw her uh, donating to this or championing this and a lot of good causes. From what we know, she did not trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. Maybe she did. I hope she did. But from what we know, it's just an illustration. So when she breathed her last breath and stepped into eternity, she stepped into facing condemnation. Because though she did good, it was relative good. She didn't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love her neighbor as herself. 
because no one ever has except Jesus. And from what we know, she never trusted in Christ. So it's a sad ending. But even that alone might be enough to have you say, I question God's goodness. That would be a mistake. But it's a, it's a, it's a good test starter. God was not obligated to save her. He's not obligated to save anyone. It's His grace. It belongs to Him. Friend, second character that many of you will know, I wish none of us knew. The infamous Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer treated people brutally, murdered people that he treated brutally, and Jeffrey Dahmer is infamous because he also cannibalized them. He was a bad person. I don't know his heart. I don't know exactly the details of it. But it's been reported that before he died, he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And if he did, he breathed his last breath and entered into eternal bliss and happiness and was welcomed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a tough pill to swallow from where we sit. Why did God, if he did, extend his saving grace to Jeffrey Dahmer? I don't know. God is good. It's his. It belongs to him. Everybody's deserving of condemnation. So if God chooses to save even one, generous and gracious. Friend. <laughs> now you might be asking, how could this be? And the, the, the way this can be is none of us are good. None of us are righteous to earn the favor of God. And so anyone and everyone, whether it be Princess Di or Dahmer, who looks outside of themselves and, tr- selves and trusts in the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did everything right and was treated as if he did everything wrong and made atonement for sins and was resurrected from the dead, for everyone who would ever trust in him, that's how. That's how. That's why we call it good news. One more part of the test. Even think about the psalm that we read earlier, Psalm 136, that, that I think I, I, I really liked. I, th- I would imagine a lot of you liked it too. But if you were to read that and, and slow down and maybe pretend like you're not a Christian or um, pretend like you have a beef with God's sovereignty, it's staggering to the mind. God is good and He did good things for us. Praise be to Him, right? His loving kindness endures forever. God killed all of those countless men in the great sea who were dads and fathers, Egyptians. 
His steadfast love endures forever. There are multiple examples in that text. And you go, and and He took all of their land and He gave it to His people. His steadfast love endures forever. There's more than enough in Psalm 136 to get you to question God's sovereignty and to question His goodness. If He is anyone other than God, dealing with guilty sinners, us all, but saving many of them according to His sovereign grace and causing all things, including the annihilation of the Egyptian soldiers, to work together for the good of those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purpose, a la Romans 8. His steadfast love endures forever. Oh, but it is a sovereign love. Might not be the way you do it, but we're all glad that you're not God. Amen? (laughs) We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this riveting parable that Jesus gives to us. Uh, May it cause us to, to think better and more appropriately about how it is that you extend your grace. We are thankful for this great Savior that we have in Jesus. And we are thankful for the fact that uh, in all sobriety and earnestness, He does say friend. Thank you for His patience. Thank you for His kindness. We do have questions. There's so much that is a mystery to us. But may that which you've made clear to us in your word not be something that we count a mystery. We love you and we know that we love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.